Hi, and welcome to this podcast on the Reuben Sandwich. This is your host, Tom Russell. We've all heard of it, and almost all of us have eaten it. An American classic that's a must-have at any deli, a common staple of restaurants, bars, and even fast food. Looking at you, Arby's. The sandwich has undoubtedly ingrained itself in American cuisine. So when you think of the Reuben, what comes to mind? First, you might think of its ingredients. Rye bread is a must, as is corned beef. There's also sauerkraut, Swiss cheese, and of course, the dressing, which is more often than not Russian. Now envision its history. Most of us know there's a Jewish connection to it, but if we were to associate it with a city, would it be New York or perhaps Philadelphia? If you're super well-versed in Reuben history, you might even say Omaha, Nebraska. Few dishes have a concrete origin story, and the Reuben is no different. It's a sandwich with a rich history and hundreds of regional and cultural variations, and through it all has grown to become one of the most iconic staples of American deli cuisine. This is the Reuben. My first experience with the Reuben was an unusual one. I lived abroad from the ages of 8 to 12, with most of those years being spent living in Latin America. Now, let's be clear, I loved Latin American food. But as a 12-year-old boy raised on quick trip hot dogs and Five Guys hamburgers, I'd be lying if I said I didn't miss some of the classic American cuisine. My family shared my sentiment, and in the weeks following our return to America, we feasted on the American foods we'd grown to miss in the last four years. It was sometime during this period that I first tried the Reuben. It was my first time trying a sandwich that wasn't of the BLT or PB&J variety, and I was immediately hooked. Say what you will, but it was the best sandwich I'd ever tasted. I was looking for a piece of American cuisine that day, and the Reuben is about as American as you can get. The founding of the sandwich is traced back to two stories, both of which claim to be the legitimate origin of the sandwich. The first is perhaps a bit more familiar. Once upon a time, in a small New York delicatessen, a German-American man named Arnold Rubin invented the sandwich. It was 1914, and a famous actress by the name of Marjorie Rambeau entered the delicatessen. The order among you may remember her for her role in the Oscar-nominated film Primrose Path, as Arnold Rubin did that night. Unfortunately, the rush from earlier that evening had left the show was largely empty, so Rubin, wanting to impress her, threw together all of his leftover ingredients into a new sandwich. This would later become the signature Reuben. The story is something of a classic, but in the decades after it's proven to be super exaggerated by Reuben and probably untrue. The second story goes like this. In 1920, a Jewish-Lithuanian-born grocer by the name of Reuben Kolofoski owned the Blackstone Hotel in Omaha, Nebraska. During a weekly poker game with his buds, one of them invented the sandwich and was promptly put on the Blackstone's menu. The city of Omaha, desperate for cultural significance, soon named March 14th the Reuben Sandwich Day and claimed Omaha as the original home of the sandwich. Oblivious to this wild history of the Reuben, I continued to order the Reuben whenever I found it on the menu. When I was 14, I started making them for myself as an after-school snack, and shortly thereafter I began to have Reuben gatherings with my friends. We'd walk to my house, I'd make the Reubens, and then we'd discuss the latest high school gossip over some delicious corned beef and rye bread. Of course, these Reubens that I so carefully crafted at home were good, but nothing superb. I loved my local public deli, but their corned beef could only go so far. 
To my disappointment, the restaurants near me in Decatur, Georgia, didn't fare much better. So began my quest for a truly authentic Reuben. In September of that year, I found myself on a plane with my brother to New York City. If you believe Arnold Rubin's story over that Akolafoski, as I do, then this city is the Rubin lover's mecca. I was set to visit my cousin in Manhattan, and I was absolutely ecstatic. She was the head curator at the Whitney Museum of Art, and her partner of 18 years was an art lawyer. As I saw it, they were the epitome of culture, intellect, and sophistication. By chance, they were also casual foodies. When I told her of my recent interest in the Rubens, she laughed. Have you ever been to Katz? She asked. I told her no. I'd never heard of it. So a plan was formed. I would go to Katz, pick up Rubens for everyone, and then come back to the apartment for a showing of Casablanca. My brother and I had never seen it, and my cousins, as the art connoisseurs they were, thought it'd be the perfect complement to a Katz Rubin. So off I went, navigating the busy streets of Manhattan until I reached Houston Street, not Houston Street, my cousin took care to point out. It was there that I found Katz Delicatessen, easily the most famous deli in America and the natural successor to Arnold Rubin's Delicatessen so many years ago. In fact, if you look at the Rubin Wikipedia page, as I do, then you'll find that the opening picture is a Rubin from this very Delicatessen. This is the moment I've been waiting for since that first Rubin so many years before. I opened the doors and was immediately hit by the smell. Everything together. Overwhelming. The smell of meat carried across the room, some chicken, maybe pork, but so much beef. It was the smell of busy, the smell of production and output, the smell of the meatpacking district back in its heyday. But no sooner had I processed this when the sauce hit me. And to this day, I couldn't tell you what it was, but it felt like Russian, Thousand Island, mustard, mayo, vinegar, and every other condiment coming together all at once. It was only when I approached the counter to order the Rubens that my nose found the strongest scent of them all. Sauerkraut. It's one of the most signature ingredients on a Reuben, and in my opinion is a must-have for any sandwich hoping to identify as such. It's made through fermentation. Simply put some thinly sliced raw cabbage in a mason jar of water, sprinkle salt, and wait. A few days pass, and behold, you have sauerkraut. The word itself is German, and translates as sour lettuce. This sour lettuce didn't originate in Germany, however, as it's believed to have come from Central Asia thousands of years ago. Legend has it that it was introduced to Europe in the 1200s by Genghis Khan's armies. It found its way to the New World in the 18th century with the advent of German immigrants to the 13 colonies, but was popularized in America in the late 19th century during the German immigration boom. But back to the story. Katz is counter service, so a customer waits in line for their order. I waited for about 15 minutes before it came time to place my own, and I promptly got four Reuben sandwiches. Customarily, I'd go off to the side and wait for the food, but that didn't seem to be the vibe here. Instead, the guy behind the counter immediately grabbed eight slices of rye from behind him and threw it on the cutting board. From my vantage point, I could see him making the sandwich through the glass, and the color of the rye immediately caught my eye. It was white and, to my surprise, non-marbled. This didn't look like any rye I'd heard of. I leaned over the counter and asked if this was in fact right, to which he issued a short reply, yes. As it turns out, this marbled swirl that I'd erroneously associated with rye bread is in fact one of many rye styles, one that Katz doesn't partake in. It's formed from combining the lighter colored Jewish rye bread with the darker American pumpernickel bread, which is also rye bread. While both of these ryes are originally from Europe, the combination of the two is a uniquely American phenomenon and is most often associated with the American Jewish population. 
In abstaining from the signature swirl, cats had chosen to omit the American pumpernickel from their bread, opting instead for the traditional Jewish rice sisal bread. No sooner was the bread on the cutting board when he began to chop the meat. This part is one of the most memorable, in no small part because of the size of the knife. This kid, who in hindsight couldn't have been much older than I am now, welded this apparatus with a degree of precision reminiscent of Olympic fencing. Each slice can have been more than half a centimeter, but he ensured that each sandwich had at least one inch of meat, if not more. I couldn't help but reflect on my local public deli, where the corned beef was cut using a machine. But what even is corned beef? Until recently, I had a visual of a cow getting mixed up in a cornfield, but that couldn't actually be the origins of corned beef, right? To the disappointment of my 14-year-old self, this is not, in fact, how corned beef is produced. In fact, corn never even makes an appearance in the production of corned beef. Of all the ingredients on a Reuben, corned beef is easily the oldest, having first been discovered by the ancient Egyptians. It's a salt-cured brisket of beef where, quote-unquote, corns of rock salt are treated across the beef for added flavor and longer preservation. It was largely isolated to the military and niche delis until the Industrial Revolution when it was first introduced by British factories in Ireland. It was then exported in massive quantities to the rest of Europe and the New World. Its introduction to America is tainted by its most common use, as it was the food of choice for slaveholders due to its cheap cost, longevity, and protein content. But, he finishes cutting and promptly slaps the sauerkraut and Swiss cheese on the meat. At this point, he places the sandwich in a toaster, melting the Swiss cheese and giving the bread its signature toasted quality. He proceeds to take them out of the toaster and promptly slathers the top bread with Russian dressing. To see these four perfect Rubens in front of me was an emotional moment. The perfectly white rye bread, an inch of freshly cut corned beef, melted Swiss cheese alongside dripping sauerkraut topped with a layer of Russian dressing. This was the Rubin that Arnold Rubin and Rubin Kalafuski envisioned that fateful evening in New York and slash or Omaha. He put them all in their individual bags and handed them to me across the counter, and I departed the delicatessen in a daze. I walked down Houston Street oblivious to the sounds and smells of New York, thinking instead of the four sandwiches I so tenderly carried. I got to the apartment, and my cousin's brother and I made quick work of putting on Casablanca and opening our Rubens. The movie began, and as a soon-to-be history major, I was immediately captivated by the historical period of the film and how niche it was. Before Casablanca, I would never have given much thought to the inner political workings of Vichy Morocco during World War II, but here we were, enjoying a film about it. It didn't take long, though, for my mind to drift back to the sandwich I was holding in my hands, and how politics and history must have impacted that over the years. Over the course of history, the sandwich has fluctuated in popularity, owing largely to the political environment surrounding its ingredients. Have you ever wondered why the Reuben was invented so comparatively recently? Chances are a deli owner could have put together these ingredients far sooner if not for the politics of corned beef. The production of corned beef was slashed dramatically following the abolition of slavery in the United States and Britain and Spain, and mass production would only begin again during World War I when it became a must-have ingredient for soldiers on the front lines. If you remember the dates from the two stories originally, 1914 and 1920, you'll find that the sandwich was invented right at the onset of corned beef's so-called rediscovery. Or take sauerkraut as an example. During both World War I and World War II, sauerkraut sales fell dramatically, as many Americans branded the food a German creation and therefore stopped purchasing it. 
The collapse of the sauerkraut market was in fact so dramatic during this period that American sauerkraut producers petitioned the U.S. government to initiate a campaign renaming sauerkraut to Liberty Cabbage to escape its German stigma. Of course, this segues into another, darker political side of the Rubin, discrimination. The Rubin is by and large a Jewish conception, in part because of the Jewish rye bread, but primarily because both potential founders were Jews. Unfortunately, many in America have failed to appreciate the culinary contributions of the American Jewry solely because of their religion. Even though anti-Semitism is most often associated with early 20th century Europe, anti-Semitism still very much exists in America today. The lessons of love from Casablanca have yet to permeate throughout American society, and many in our country still harbor a hatred for those different from them. Perhaps then the Rubin can be seen as something of a national unifier. Because what is the Rubin, really? Its founding lies in the American East, but also in the Midwest. It's both German and apparently Lithuanian. Its ingredients derive from a range that spans Genghis Khan all the way to Marjorie Rambeau, and everything in between. Even the Russian sauce originates in Russia, a nation that had become the polar opposite of what America stood for in the 20th century. In short, the Rubin is America, an ambiguous, controversial past with a melting pot of ingredients from all across the world. And through this combination arose one of the greatest sandwiches of all time. Perhaps in the story, anti-Semites can take a lesson. That America benefits from my diverse backgrounds, and that without the diversity of our collective experience, such quintessential American foods like the Reuben would never have existed. The government can use the diverse origins of the Reuben and other iconic dishes to prove just how essential religious diversity is towards the foundation of America as we know it today. But enough policy consideration. My Reuben was getting cold. So, here went nothing. I took a bite of the Reuben and was immediately hit by cacophony flavors. The sauerkraut was the first thing to meet my tongue. The texture of cabbage, but sour, in a good way. Ever so wet with the brine that it fermented in over the last week. And then the rye bread. Soft, high in fiber. A rich taste that makes its presence known but doesn't dominate the sandwich. Soon after, the Swiss cheese makes an appearance. This was a taste I was intimately familiar with, as I was drawn back to my own sandwiches at home. But finally, the meat. The corned beef so skillfully cut just half an hour before, carefully seasoned and cooked with a precision only an established delicatessen could achieve. It seemed to come apart on my mouth and pervaded every aspect of the bite in the best way possible. And finally, the Russian dressing, coating everything with a sweet sweetness that counters the sourness of the sauerkraut and adds flavor to the rye and corned beef. The perfect capstone to a perfect bite. The four of us were entranced. Something about Humphrey Bogart coupled with the world's best Reuben has a habit of shutting people up, and who are we to defy such precedent? The movie played on, and our sandwiches got smaller and smaller. In no time they were gone, replaced by the cinematic masterpiece of Casablanca. Rick and Elsa may have had Paris, yes, but I had New York, or Omaha, depending on which story you want to believe.